an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I see many friends here, and uh, among them, some who um, know as much about Newman as I do. So uh, I, um, that has for me the great advantage that I'll get some very good, serious, critical reaction uh, from you. Uh, as uh, Dr. Healy said, I uh, am working on this sabbatical project of the Christian personalism of Newman. And it occurred to me just a couple of weeks ago that it would be a very good thing uh, if I offered a series of lectures in which I present to my friends here at the university uh, the results of my research on Newman. Uh, that is maybe of interest to you all, especially now that we have the beatification of Newman. There's a lot of new interest in who he was and what he taught ever since he's been beatified. And um, as I say, it will be very helpful for me to get your um, critical reaction. And so we want to leave time for that uh, tonight. Now, there is um, an excellent book on Newman as philosopher by Edward Sillam, an Englishman. And at the end of this book, Sillam gives an overall assessment of Newman among the philosophers. And he concludes, in fact, these are the last sentences of his book, saying something very significant. As far as philosophy is concerned, he wrote, Newman was no Aquinas, no Augustine, no Scotus in stature. His real work lay in other fields. But he stands at the threshold of the new age as a Christian Socrates, the pioneer of a new philosophy of the individual person and personal life. End of that quote. So in these lectures, I want to draw out this personalist originality of Newman. I want to introduce Newman to you through the pioneering personalism of which uh, Edward Sillam speaks. Now, I came to this project through my own work in personalist philosophy. I kept finding in Newman a major source of personalist insight. I kept quoting him in my own writings. Newman seemed to me a forerunner of the great 20th century Christian personalists, thinkers like Scheler, Mounier, Maritain, Guardini, Wojtyla. And so I conceived of the following plan for my sabbatical semester. I would write a study in which I don't use Newman as a source for my own projects, but center the study around Newman and his personalism. And since his personalism is so fundamental to his mind, I realize that a study of his personalism would be a study of Newman himself and would be thus a very good way of introducing Newman to those who are new to him. Now, you are sure to ask me before I proceed what I mean by personalism. Now, my meaning will emerge clearly enough uh, in the course of these lectures, but perhaps I should say something right now uh, so as to help us get oriented. So, the personalists with whom I keep company hold that each of us exists as a subject, not just as an object. In other words, as someone and not as something. Or in still other words, as self-determining and not just determined. They hold that a human person does not just exist to provide an instance of the human kind, but 
exists as this unrepeatable person and so stands in a sense above the humankind, being always more than just an instance of it. Personalists have a keen sense of the mystery of the interiority of each person, in virtue of which each always exceeds the finite qualities and properties that he or she displays. Personalists are keenly aware of the inviolability of persons. That is, they understand deeply why it is that none of us is ever rightly used or destroyed for the good of others. They are perhaps more sensitive than their ancestors to all the forms of coercion that threaten our personhood. They reject the ancient distinction between Greek and barbarian, and they know that the birthright of a person belongs not just to a select few, but to every human being. Personalists also have a distinctive understanding of social life. They say that we can no longer live in the archaic solidarity that was natural in earlier times, thus we can no longer share the religious faith of our group merely out of loyalty to the group. As person, each of us acts in his or her own name in making the basic commitments of one's life. Now, it may seem to follow from this that personalism is just another species of individualism and is sure to bring severe social fragmentation in its wake. But most personalists, and again, the ones I keep company with, the ones I'm going to align Newman with, um, have been very sensitive to the sterility of individualism. They've taken very seriously the interpersonal relations in which human persons live and move and have their being. Personalists refuse to think about social life only in terms of rights and of protection against intruders. They think of it mainly in terms of solidarity and co-responsibility. Now, personalists think that this sense of personal existence that they try to express philosophically has been awakening among people in the last couple of centuries and that this awakening is an epical event in humanity, a sea change in the way we understand ourselves. Now, what I want to show in these lectures is that Newman is a significant voice in this epical event. He gives expressions to some of the deepest insights that are found in this rising personalism. Now, <clears throat> before I get to work with the first lecture, I've really just introduced the whole series of five uh, lectures, but um, one more word of introduction, namely about how I do not want to proceed um, in the lectures. Given my training in philosophy, I'm liable to try to bracket out Newman's faith and extract a properly philosophical core of thought about persons. Newman's personalism, however, is so embedded in his faith that such a strictly philosophical approach would produce something artificial. I do better to take Newman as the Christian thinker that he was I do better not even to claim that I will always be speaking in these lectures strictly as a philosopher. Thus, I don't apologize at all for beginning, as I will in just a moment, with Newman's sermons. At the same time, I have to say that Newman's personalism is not just for believers. Much that we find in it is such as to fascinate and challenge non-Christians, and I want to give particular attention to this broader appeal of Newman. <clears throat> One other mistake I want to avoid, um, 
before I start. Um, even if I keep his philosophy and faith together, as I mean to do, I could still make the mistake of trying, I've done it before in the past in my work on Newman, trying to extract from his writings a doctrine about persons that I sum up in the way that I just summed up personalism. But Newman's thought <coughs> is so embedded in the drama of his life that I would do him an injustice by abstracting his thought from this drama. Indeed, it belongs to the personalism of Newman that he was not just a channel for a doctrine about persons, but is himself personally inseparable from this doctrine. So his thought and teaching will speak to us with its full force only if it remains rooted in his personal history. All right, enough of introduction. The first presentation in the series is entitled, as you see, The Personalist Spirit of Newman's Thought. So let me turn to that. Now in this first lecture, I want to speak about Newman's love of the concrete. He is wary of abstractions and universals, or at least of certain uses of them, and is at home with what is concrete and individual. He does not want to live by the intellect alone, but by the imagination and by experience as well. This is a fundamental spirit pervading Newman's thought. And it's something broader than his personalism, but deeply akin to it. His attunement to the concrete individual, to the place of the heart, of intuition and imagination, imparts a personalist spirit to his thought, as we will now see. Now, I want to approach this concreteness of Newman's mind by way of his sermons. He was an inspired an anointed preacher. And as a young Anglican priest, he led the reform movement in the Church of England, known to history as the Oxford Movement. And this ferment of religious renewal shook the Church of England to its foundations. And it was Newman who gave the main impetus to the Oxford Movement. And he gave it most of all through his preaching at the University Church of St. Mary's in Oxford. Many who heard Newman preach left written accounts of his preaching, and I quote from one of them. His power as a preacher showed itself chiefly in the new and unlooked-for way in which he touched into life all truths, moral and spiritual, which all Christians acknowledged, but most have ceased to feel. As he spoke, how the old truth became new, how it came home with a meaning never felt before. And of that uh, quote from the um, person who had experienced Newman preaching. Now we often find evidence in Newman's sermons that he is consciously aiming to, as that author says, touch into life all truths. For example, in a very early sermon entitled The Immortality of the Soul, Newman writes, in spite of our being able to speak fluently about it, that is, the immortality of the soul, there seems scarcely room to doubt that the greater number of those who are called Christians in no true sense realize it in their own minds at all. Indeed, it is a very difficult thing to bring home to us and to feel that we have souls, and there cannot be a more fatal mistake than to suppose we see what the doctrine means 
as soon as we can use the words which signify it. End of that quote. So in that sermon, he proceeds to help his listeners realize that they have souls. Indeed, to make them feel it concretely and in this way to touch into life the old truth of the immortality of the soul. Now, uh, let me give you a concrete specimen of uh, Newman touching into life uh, a truth. And in fact, I'm going to turn to another sermon that deals, though, also with this question of the immortality of the soul. Uh, and I'm going to uh, make a somewhat longer extract just so you have a sense of how uh, this uh, leading us to realize what we've long professed without much realizing it uh, is accomplished by Newman. So in another sermon, uh, also on personal immortality, he says, when one sees some excellent person whose graces we know, whose kindliness, affectionateness, tenderness, and generosity, when we see him dying, let him have lived ever so long. I am not supposing a premature death. Let him live out his days. The thought is forced upon us with a sort of surprise. Surely he is not to die yet. He has not yet had any opportunity of exercising duly those excellent gifts with which God endowed him. Let him have lived 70 or 80 years, yet it seems as if he had done nothing at all and his life were scarcely begun. And in the same sermon he says, there is something in moral truth and goodness, in faith, in firmness, in heavenly mindedness, in meekness, in courage, in loving kindness, to which this world's circumstances are quite unequal, for which the longest life is insufficient, which makes the highest opportunities of this world disappointing, which must burst the prison of this world to have its appropriate range. So that when a good man dies, one is led to say, he has not half showed himself. He has had nothing to exercise him. His days are gone like a shadow and he is withered like grass. And then Newman um, concludes with this point about realizing a truth. I am not attempting by such reflections to prove that there is a future state. Let us take that for granted. I mean, over and above our positive belief in this great truth, we attain a sort of sensible conviction of that life to come, a certainty striking home to our hearts and piercing them by this imperfection in what is present. The very greatness of our powers makes this life look pitiful. The very pitifulness of this life forces on our thoughts to another." End of that quote. <coughs> you see what people meant by Newman touching into life old truths. He did this by leading his listeners from abstract acknowledgment of some truth to heart-piercing realization of it. And what he does in this sermon, he does again and again um, so that it's almost, uh, as it were, the signature of Newman's sermons. This, um, awakening a deeper realization of what one has long professed. Now, let's try to understand more exactly just what is involved in Newman's power of realizing truth and in leading us to realize it. I want to do this by examining with you an important distinction that stands at the center of his most philosophical work, The Grammar of Ascent. I see some students who studied that with me last semester, so they're ready for what follows. In that work, Newman distinguishes 
between notional and real apprehension, also notional and real assent. Forget for now about the distinction between apprehension and assent. It's the distinction between notional and real that I want to uh, explore. And I want to show that in the sermons and indeed in all of his writings, he is constantly converting notional apprehension into real apprehension. And I'll also show that the concreteness and closeness to experience of Newman's thought, the thing I started with, lies in his affinity for real apprehension. And finally, I'll explain why Newman is a personalist thinker as a result of his affinity for real apprehension and his uncanny ability to awaken it in us. All right, here is an example of notional apprehension passing over into real apprehension. Take the truth that I will one day die. To apprehend it notionally is to apprehend it on the basis of the universal mortality of all living things. I think to myself, all living things die, myself included. I subsume myself under universal mortality. But now suppose I have just gotten an ominous test result from my doctor, aggressive, inoperable cancer. I know that I will soon die. My coming death is no longer abstract, but pierces me with its concreteness. I experience myself not just as a logical part of all living beings, but almost as if I were the only human being. I experience my death as something concerning me personally. I apprehend it really. I am filled with shuddering, whereas <coughs> the notional ascent to my coming death leaves me unmoved, almost as if I were just a spectator of my own future death. Well, here you get a first impression of the abstractness of notional apprehension in Newman and the concreteness of real apprehension. Let's take another example of the transition from notional to real. This is one of Newman's own examples in the Grammar of Ascent, uh, an example I've always especially admired. He writes, let us consider how differently young and old are affected by the words of some classic author, such as Homer or Horace. Passages which to a boy are but rhetorical commonplaces, neither better nor worse than a hundred others which any clever author might supply, which he gets by heart and thinks very fine, at length, at length come home to him when long years have passed and he has had experience of life and they pierce him as if he had never before known them with their sad earnestness and vivid exactness. End of that quote. The schoolboy apprehends the true sayings of the classical authors only notionally. But when he has grown up and had some experience of life, he apprehends the same sayings, really. Now, for the first time, he understands why the utterances of these classical writers have been cherished down through the ages. Notice that Newman speaks, uh, and it's not the first time we've heard it either, uh, of the power of real apprehension to pierce the boy who is now a man. Notional apprehension, by contrast, takes things abstractly and so keeps them at a greater distance. To us, it has no such power to pierce us. Now, so far, our examples of notional and real have been non-religious examples. But of course, the distinction is found in religion. And in fact, this is the place where the distinction interests Newman most. Now, above we saw 
human converting an abstract acknowledgement of the immortality of the soul into a living realization of it. Let's take that as another example of the distinction between notional and real. Notional passing into real uh, apprehension. And now, with these examples of Newman's distinction on the table, I want to try to give um, a bit more of a philosophical account of the distinction between real and notional. It's not enough to have a feel for it through revealing examples. We want, and Newman wanted to, uh, to understand it with greater precision. This is something very fundamental to the mind of Newman, this real notional distinction. So let me offer you um, three points of contrast between notional and real apprehension. And you'll see for yourself, as I proceed, how it is that Newman's concern with real apprehension imparts a personalist spirit to his thought. Well then, first uh, point of contrast, we can get at the heart of Newman's idea only if we consider that real if we consider that instead of real apprehension, Newman often says experiential apprehension. Real apprehension is born of an experiential contact with concrete things. It's not enough to know about concrete things. We have to experience them in their concreteness if we are to gain a real apprehension of them. Notional apprehension, by contrast, always abridges experience, keeping concrete things at a certain distance. If I virtually deduce my future death from the universal mortality of all men, then I can apprehend my death, concrete though it is, without having to encounter it in an experiential way. I can keep it at a distance, acknowledging it without being troubled by it. Now, human often reflects in the most interesting way on ways in which notional apprehension can function so as to dry up, so to say, the experiential fullness of things. Thus, he explains in one place how surgeons protect themselves against the reality of dreadful diseases they have to deal with by describing them with abstract Greek and Latin root names. In this case, he says there's a good reason for letting our notions, our notional apprehension, block out appalling experiences. But in other cases, the deliberate use of notional apprehension can be distinctly dishonest. Um, and I'm going to quote a few lines here from a famous essay of George Orwell, who makes this point exactly in the vein of Newman. Um, Orwell says, now speaking of this dishonesty that can be uh, carried out with the help of notional apprehension. He says, defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine gunned, the hut set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. People are imprisoned for years without trial, or shot in the back of the neck, or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. And then Orwell says, such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Or as Newman would put it, if one wants to name things while avoiding any experiential grasp of them. One could, of course, update Orwell's examples and mention uh, the highly notional talk of 
termination of pregnancy as a way of obscuring the concrete reality of abortion. Now, Newman um, found a, a, a very good metaphor to express this point of contrast between notional and real, this um, experiential character of real apprehension. He says, in apprehending notionally, we relate to something from the outside. Whereas in apprehending it really, we relate to it from within. And this is well said. We really do keep a distance to that which we apprehend notionally, as you can see in those examples. And we really do enter in a more intimate and experiential way uh, into that which we apprehend really. And, and Newman understood the reason for this distance that goes with notional apprehension. In notional, we pick out some aspect of a thing, or maybe several aspects of it, even though the full reality of the thing is always vastly more than these aspects, and indeed vastly more than the totality of all its aspects. Thus, when I apprehend my future death in the notional way described above, I take it in one limited respect, namely in respect of what it has in common with the mortality of all living beings. But there is very much about my death that exceeds this limited respect. And I'm confronted with this excess when I begin to face my death as my personal death. Thus, notional apprehension keeps my death at a distance because it fixes on one limited aspect of it, leaving out of view the full human reality of it. And this is why notional apprehension is perfectly adapted to the surgeons who want to keep a distance to the grim reality of disease, but also perfectly adapted to those deceitful people who have an interest in hiding the sordid deeds in which they are complicit. All right, so much on the experiential character of real apprehension. Secondly, Newman often calls real apprehension imaginative apprehension. In the earlier drafts of the Grammar of Ascent, this was in fact his name for what he later called real apprehension. He says that with real apprehension, we have an image in the imagination, whereas with notional, we have a notion in the intellect. Thus, Newman's distinction between notional and real can be expressed as a contrast between a purely intellectual apprehension and an imaginative one. Now, Newman's using imagination in a very broad uh, sense. It, image, for him, does not mean anything like a visual image. It doesn't even mean sensible image. He recognizes all kinds of thoroughly non-sensible images. For instance, he speaks in one place about the image that you can form in your mind of the mindset, the intellectual style of St. Augustine by reading his writings, and um, about the difference between that intellectual character of Augustine and how it di differs from, say, St. Jerome or some other uh, Christian writer. Uh, so there you have image in a sense that isn't um, any kind of sensible image, because that image of, say, the image I get of the spiritual character of Newman from reading Newman uh, is not any kind of bodily corporeal image. Newman even speaks of an image we have of God when he contrasts in a passage that we'll study later in this series the theological intellect with the religious imagination. Just be tantalized by the distinction Come back, especially to the fifth lecture, if you want more on that subject. But right now, I just want to say that 
clearly Newman's religious imagination doesn't work with sense images. So Newman would call it an act of imagination for a person to realize, really realize that he or she will one day die. He would call it an act of imagination to realize that you are capable of life beyond earthly existence. That goes back to the long quote that I read. Indeed, whenever he speaks about realizing a truth, he is referring to the imaginative apprehension of it. So much then on this second uh, mark, the imaginative character of real apprehension in contrast to a certain purely intellectual character of notional apprehension. Now we come to the third and final point of contrast. Real apprehension is experienced as an act of the whole person. Newman sees notional apprehension as situated just in the intellect. But he sees real apprehension as involving the heart as well. Notice how he complains of the knowledge of God that is born of the traditional proofs for the existence of God. He once famously said that these proofs, quote, do not warm me and enlighten me. They do not take away the winter of my desolation or make the buds unfold and the leaves grow within me and my moral being rejoice. End of that quote. And he means that these proofs do not touch him affectively because they yield, even when they're successful, only notional knowledge. Newman will settle for nothing less than the real knowledge of God that engages his whole being. And as I've said, we'll discuss in the final lecture just how Newman proposes to gain this real uh, knowledge of God. Now, because of the affective power of real apprehension, uh, it is much more powerful than notional in moving us to act. We can acknowledge a truth notionally and yet keep it from ever getting close to our behavior, even though it has, in fact, consequences for our behavior. But real apprehensions, since they touch us affectively, have an impact on our behavior. In an often quoted passage from the Grammar of Ascent, Newman says, the heart is commonly reached not through reason, but through the imagination, by means of direct impressions, by the testimony of facts and events. Persons influence us, voices melt us, looks subdue us, deeds inflame us. So all the real apprehension involved there, Newman wants to say, has a power to move us. And in terms of power to move us, uh, notional apprehension is a very weak thing. So summing up these three uh, points, real apprehension for Newman is experiential and does not just keep things at a distance. It is imaginative and not purely intellectual. And it engages the whole person, touching the heart and moving the will, and does not engage only the mind. And you see how these three <coughs> aspects of real apprehension are really variations on one theme. And this one theme is what I meant at the beginning when I uh, spoke of the concreteness of Newman's mind. Now, let us return to where we started, namely Newman the preacher. How was he able to touch old truths into life? What can we gain for our understanding of Newman from his own distinction between real and notional? Well, let us remind ourselves briefly of his historical situation. Newman lived in a country in which Christianity was established as the law of the land. 
the church and the crown were closely allied. As a result, almost everyone was baptized and catechized to a degree, and most people knew and professed the creed. But the Christian religion, an integral part of the English establishment, had little power over the lives of English Christians. That's what Newman saw in his day. In one of his best-known Anglican sermons entitled Unreal Words, Newman masterfully characterizes the religious barrenness of the established church. And he does this by describing the kind of religious talk that is common among English Christians. He speaks of, and I quote, the mode in which people speak of the shortness and vanity of life, the certainty of death, the joys of heaven. They have commonplaces in their mouths which they bring forth upon occasions for the good of others or to console them or as a proper and becoming mark of attention towards them. Thus they speak to clergymen in a professedly serious way, making remarks true and sound and in themselves deep, yet unmeaning in their mouths. Or when they fall into sin, they speak of man being frail, of the deceitfulness of the human heart, of God's mercy, and so on. All these great words, heaven, hell, judgment, mercy, repentance, works, the world that now is, the world to come, being little more than lifeless sounds in their mouths and ears as the proprieties of conversation or the civilities of good breeding. End of the quote. So working in this pastoral situation, Newman did not, in the first place, see himself called to give his parishioners clearer explanations of religious truths or to refute errors. Newman thought that they suffered from a overgrowth of notional apprehension and an atrophy of real apprehension. He sought, rather, to make people realize the truths that they were so fruitlessly professing. He sought to make the sources of religious experience flow for them again. He sought to reawaken the religious imagination. He sought to appeal not only to the intellect, but also to the heart, and in this way, to stir up his listeners to action. In a word, in a word, he set about converting notional apprehension into real apprehension, replacing unreal words, as the title of that sermon was, with real words. That was the secret of his power as preacher. And it is a power that can still be felt by us today when we read his sermons. And it's not just limited to his sermons. A commitment to real apprehension, to concrete thinking, to discourse in which heart speaks to heart, as Newman says, is the signature of almost all of Newman's writings. Now, there remains one item, and we are finished, and that is the question, what is distinctly personalistic about Newman's commitment to real apprehension? We maybe perhaps all of us sense some connection there with his personalism, uh, but let me conclude by offering a few thoughts on that connection. Newman says that real ascent, so ascent and apprehension, we can take as interchangeable for now. He, he says that real ascents, quote, are of a personal character, each individual having his own, and being known by them, end of that quote. He also says, real ascent then, as well as the experience which it presupposes, is proper to the individual and as such thwarts rather than promotes the intercourse of man with man. End of that quote. Newman draws out the contrast to notional apprehension, which he says is, quote, in itself an ordinary act of our common nature, 
all of us have the power of abstraction and can be taught either to make or to enter into the same abstractions. And uh, quote, this means that the universal mortality of all men as, a, as an abstraction is readily available to everyone. But that encounter with my own coming death, which pierces me in a personal way and makes me shudder, is something that each has to grow into for himself. If someone lacks a real apprehension of his death, I cannot transmit it to him, at least not in the way I can transmit notional information about mortality. The other person has to gain that real apprehension for himself. So here is a way of discerning the personalism in Newman's passion for real apprehension and concrete thinking. He is present to us in a personal way by the strength of his real apprehension. And he engages us personally by his special gift of awakening real apprehension in us. If his discourse had been mainly notional, he would have remained personally hidden in his writings and would not have addressed us in a distinctly personal way. But more important on the personalism here in Newman is this. Newman's real apprehension is exactly what is needed for the act of understanding persons. For a person is an individual being and is in fact a radically individual being insofar as each person is unrepeatable. That is, a person never exists as a copy of another person, nor does he or she ever exist as a mere instance or specimen of some type or kind, such as the human kind. I mentioned this above when I was summarizing personalism. This means that abstract thinking and notional apprehension, which always involve general terms and universal concepts, are liable to bypass persons as persons. Martin Buber made a great point of this in his classic study, I and Thou. He said that real openness to another person is always disrupted by characterizing the other in general terms. For this approach only yields up a number of properties and qualities of the other so that the other gets lost as this unique person. Martin Buber would have recognized in Newman's real apprehension something like that openness to another person that is at the basis of a real encounter with the other as person. So that idea of Newman's real apprehension is somehow being ideally adapted to persons and doing justice to persons in all their concrete individuality. Very interesting in this connection are Newman's comments on stereotypes. He describes how we read off of the stereotypes what must characterize certain people, but not directly consulting our experience of those people. We are prepared, he says, quote, without the trouble of direct inquiry to draw the individual after the peculiarities of his type. And he mentioned some of these stereotypes. He mentions in one place cold and selfish Scots, crafty Italians, and vulgar Americans. <laughs> in another place, Newman complains of certain scientific ways of studying man that are very like stereotyping. This is a priceless uh, passage. He says, man, the term, is no longer what he really is, an individual presented to us by our senses. He is attenuated into an aspect or relegated to his place in a classification. If I might use a harsh metaphor, I should say that 
he is made the logarithm of his true self. And in that shape is worked with the ease and satisfaction of logarithms. End of the quote. A harsh metaphor and a striking metaphor, very expressive of that contraction of experience that comes from relating only notionally to the world. This contraction of experience has the effect of filtering out the concrete person, leaving us with only a few conspicuous qualities or properties of the person. It has the effect, as Newman suggests, of making persons available for manipulation. It takes Newman's real apprehension to break down all stereotypes and get in touch with concrete persons and to raise an obstacle to our deep-rooted patterns of manipulation. It is then not surprising uh, that when Newman tries to convert notional into real apprehension, he commonly focuses on something personal. Recall the line quoted above where Newman is speaking about avoiding mere notional apprehension and achieving real apprehension. I quote it again. Persons influence us, voices melt us, looks subdue us, deeds inflame us. I almost want to uh, knowingly exaggerate a little and say the chief object of Newman's real apprehension is the personal, persons. We will see in the last lecture of this series that when Newman tries to gain a real apprehension of the being of God, he turns to the eminently personal encounter with God in conscience. Only God is personal and living can satisfy Newman's search for a concrete, imaginative, experiential apprehension of God. And so I think it does make sense to begin uh, my study of Newman's personalism with his uncanny power of converting notional apprehension into real. We can grasp here something of the personalist spirit of all his thought. Now in the next lecture, in three weeks, we'll move beyond this personalist spirit and get into substantive reflections on the person, and it'll be the human person before God, according to Newman. That will be uh, the subject of the uh, second lecture in three weeks. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.